0: I didn't know about this whole flute epidemic of things.
1: You gotta play that after the after the holiday greetings.
0: I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep.
1: In episode 58, we'll talk about how US chip restrictions are already leading to a fragmentation of markets for, you guessed it, chipmaker NVIDIA, why Elon is no longer cool, and of course the famous Swiss polecat. And later we'll be joined by Fabian Waldemeyer of Fairtrade Max Havilar, who will tell us if fair trade is still relevant in the age of regulation, spoiler alert, uh, it is, how inflation is affecting consumers of fair trade. Uh, they have less money and what a fair trade kebab would look like fascinating expensive and we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes so let's get into it
0: well everybody welcome to episode number 58 that would be the atomic number of cerium. I know you're all wondering Cerium is in fact the second element in the lanthanide series, which is a group of elements that also includes lanthanum. So eagle-eared listeners will know that we mentioned this in the previous episode. 58 is also the number of a spiral galaxy located in the constellation Virgo, my favorite star sign. It was also discovered by French astronomer Charles Messier in 1779. I think he played for the Rangers. It was a forward. I love that guy. I don't even like hockey. I just know (laughs) the name Messier. (laughs) 58th Street is also the number of a famous street in New York City. West 58th Street is known for being in the heart of Midtown and close to Central Park. It's a bustling area with restaurants, shops, and cultural institutions. Words never associated with my hometown. 58 in literature also appears in various works, often chosen by authors for its aesthetic or symbolic value. Also, second midlife crises usually happen at 58.
1: The second one. Porsche Um, dealer. Porsche dealers also love the number 58 because that's the age of them. (laughs) That's exactly the age. And you got the money and your gray matter slowly leaking out of your ear. So you might
0: as well spend it. Money, not the gray matter. Before we get on to the next bit, it's important to mention, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch our future episodes coming up. And better yet, you can also share it with a friend or stranger. You can find this anywhere you get your podcast, so please do subscribe to all of them. And why not leave a review? Like, could you find it on Google podcast? You know why this joke will never get old? Because sometimes people don't <laughs> listen to every episode, but they listen to enough to know that it's part of- A lot like,
1: of the people f- listen to only one
0: episode. The common threat because of that joke, most likely. Probably that's when they, that's sort of like click. Anyway, I want to wish you uh welcome 2024, Rob.
1: All the best, Artie.
0: Thank you. The statute of limitations have probably expired, but I don't care because um, what's important is that we're here together in 2024 for the first episode of trades planning? Well,
1: trades planning's fiscal year starts on 15 January. How did you spend your holidays? Did you watch a lot of Die Hard? I did watch The Holiday, which is one of those where you exchange houses and you exchange Jack Black for Jude Law, Lady Diaz. Yeah, so that was a- (laughs) Fair trade. (laughs) Absolutely. Max Avalor. This was very heartwarming. Burned a lot of wood in the fireplace, even though it wasn't that cold most of the time. Doing your part for climate change? Absolutely. And ate a ham, ate a large piece of beef, turkey and then rinse and repeat excellent you did the best thing that you should do over the holidays which is nothing and a lot of day drinking especially in london so what did you do already i I was uh, just wondering i I was just going to tell you you now i started watching the walking dead i binge watched the first six seasons and does your son rock harder when it's one of those scenes where the uh, massacring the zombies i
0: just put the headphones on so he doesn't hear the zombie noises and i turn him away from the tv
1: so ah, okay this is good parenting this is parenting advice folks it's important you, yeah. you got to shield them from the horrors of the world <laughs> or potential horrors <laughs> when do you turn that chair around is that around eight months i still
0: haven't got to that part of the book yet <laughs> exactly. so when i get there That's i'll right. pretend to be an expert and tell everybody everything anyway i had some bad news though so it could have been me but it wasn't so lvmh named frederick Arnault. To his new role as the head of watches.
1: He earned that. That's not because he's the son of the other guy. It was even harder for him.
0: He's actually one of the 18 kids that Bernard Arnault has. Had a little pity party that I wasn't chosen. Anyway, I also had um, a good piece of inspiration given to me recently. I was wondering what was happening on Walking Dead, worrying about my kids sleeping, etc. And somebody sent me a really important quote, and it said that when one door closes, another opens. Yeah, really? It was Boeing Airlines.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) When one door pops out. While our listeners in Portland, please look
0: up. Anyway, it's Fantastic. also Davos. Did you know that? You remember them? Yeah, sure. What?
2: It's Davos? What? Nobody's that- told me they're going to Davos.
0: As yeah, nobody mentioned that. I actually
1: shut off LinkedIn for a while because that's all I'm seeing. What's the color of your pass? You got to take a LinkedIn picture with the color of your pass. No,
2: I had to shut off LinkedIn because it's LinkedIn.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Brought to you by Gen Z. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, it's all, it's all the same thing.
1: Thanks, Michelle. I want to know, I think it's really important now to interrupt a little bit of the podcast and just tell mom, look, mom, just because the UN turned off all their lights and all the escalators and stuff, it's no problem. I'm still employed. It's a little bit of a cash crunch. All of the lights? Not all the lights. Hashtag Kanye. <laughs> it's just they turn off the lights. Everybody's working from home to save money and to save power, which is a super classic case of doing what you're doing before but calling it something different but saving money everybody's been working from home for weeks since mid-december With the- <laughs> <laughs> i mean the light's on at home that's for sure also i thought maybe we should take note everybody i guess already knows so maybe i'm the one coming late to the party here that the glazed look is now over and we're coming back to matte skin and i i personally am really delighted with that i'm not this is going to be a big change uh- I saw pictures of tay tay with the new matte look
2: i feel like tay tay has always done matte though
1: she didn't do the glazed? No, she, she ever didn't. Glazed? glazed? So, who did do the glazed look?
2: Mm, Kylie Jenner.
1: Is she the billionaire? Although like, one?
2: Yeah. Although, like, Gen Z influencers did, did it. But now we're going on to the mob wife aesthetic. Uh,
0: okay. <laughs> really? It's legit? More importantly, Rob, have you heard about the, the new craze sweeping the, uh, the young kids? What's that? It's, uh, it's any famous movie played by a flute. So, like, you got Jurassic Park theme song played by a flute. Or my favorite, for example, is. Ghostbusters. So when you need a flute, you know what you're going to call?
1: <laughs> we got we to interview the guy that thank you, thought of that.
2: Thank you Gen Z for- to be fair, this has been a thing since 2016. But
0: <laughs> Thank you, Gen Z, for giving me something I didn't know I did not need. But for confirming that I did not need it. Jumping right into the important news stories this episode, first one up, new year, same topics, trade and national security tensions between the U.S., China, the EU, and Taiwan all happening at the same time and with big implications for chips. Not Doritos, Rob. NVIDIA, a leading graphics chip manufacturer, faces challenges in China as customers are resisting accepting downgraded chips due to concerns over their performance. So the company's caught in a predicament as it downgrades some of its chips to comply with tighter export restrictions imposed by the U.S. government. Chinese customers are expressing dissatisfaction with the lower quality of chips, which is leading to a potential revenue loss for NVIDIA. The situation underscores the complexities tech companies are facing as they navigate geopolitical tensions and as they grapple with the delicate balance of complying with regulatory requirements while also maintaining customer satisfaction and market share, kind of like the pizza company we just ordered from. Uh, And just a few years ago, Huawei was also pressured by the U.S. trade blacklist that it offloaded its budget smartphone division, the entire thing. Now, Huawei's homegrown operating system, Harmony OS, has achieved significant adoption in China, becoming the second most used operating system after Apple's iOS. This marks a notable success and showcases the potential for domestic technologies to thrive in the face of these trade restrictions imposed a couple of years ago.
1: What do you think about this, Rob? This kind of demonstrates what happens when you begin to put these restrictions in place. You've got a company that's had to downgrade its chips. So it's selling an inferior chip effectively that just gets under the restriction. It's just slightly better than the chips that are available in China and the chips that are available in China will of course improve to get to that point. So we've created this market where NVIDIA is basically flogging an inferior product and it's going to lose market share. We can see that it's going to lose revenue and you're going to see competitors that are going to be growing in that market maybe that was the objective or maybe it's a kind of a perverse effect and it's the same with Harmony OS as you mentioned Huawei was crippled by US sanctions at a certain time now it's coming back in a lot of different ways so this biggest market potentially in the world China is increasingly less accessible to US companies when the big issue has always been can US companies can foreign companies have access to Chinese consumer so you have to think, what was the objective? What's been the result? Also, we're talking about an IPO of this company called Shane. Shane, i not sure sh- how to pronounce sh- it. Is it Shine, like in glazed? This fast fashion company that people can buy, that's very cheap, that does manufacturing to order, that delivers underneath the minimum required for customs, so is able to deliver to you cheaply. They're in the middle of an IPO. Now the IPO's gotta be approved by both Chinese regulator and a US regulator. And they're trying to register with the SEC to do this IPO in the US now that would make sense both for the u.s as an investment market it makes sense for shane who doesn't they don't have any customers in china they only have manufacturing in china so this is a, so they're trying to work within a supply chain that already exists but the the way that these trade restrictions are now being put into place and investment restrictions is making this more difficult so we're creating these barriers you're right they'll find a way for sure but uh, in the meantime It's getting more complex, and people are structuring their transactions. Maybe they always have, but to a greater extent now, structuring their products and their transactions around these regulations. I agree with everything you just said,
0: but if Shane is actually not the name of the company, it's a book character. The correct pronunciation is Sheen. Sheen, sorry, yes. Like Martin Sheen. (laughs) Sheen. And everyone's favorite Sheen, Charlie. (laughs) Sorry, Emilio. Um, So, yeah, anyway, moving on. The other thing I think is important to talk about is that sustainability, as everyone knows, is becoming a necessity in this era of climate change. Whether that's ski resorts battling lack of snow to water levels in the Panama Canal, just not if you're a luxury brand selling luxury bags. In the luxury sector, Louis Vuitton owner LVMH has announced that they will not sacrifice uh, growth to accommodate environmental concerns. This is according to the eldest son of billionaire Bernard Arnault, not the one who became the head of watches. So the company's stance reflects the ongoing tensions between the economic expansion and environmental responsibility within the business world. And this highlights the, the difficult choices faced by big corporations in addressing sustainability concerns. Antoine Arnault heads up LVMH's environmental initiatives, funnily enough. He said that the luxury giant will prioritize expansion over climate. as I said. This is even though between 2019 and 2022 LVMH cut back emissions in reducing how much energy it uses in its stores, its supply chain emissions known as Scope 3 emissions rose by 16%. And over the last three years, even though sales were up 48%, Scope 3 emissions now account for most of LVMH's carbon footprint. So they've reduced a bit, but... The important stuff is going up. He said, quote, it doesn't bother us because we own the decisions we make. And above all, we believe in data, science, and the reality of things. Not in some sort of incantations that
1: we could make to clear our conscience. I like this guy. I also see where he says, becoming a sort of example of lower consumption. That's not at all our objective. Not at all. But I don't think that's what our customers want. Buy more bags. Hallelujah. Who cares about the Panama Canal? Did you ever think that luxury brand would even care about the, the future of the world? They're, they're all about massive consumption. And we, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago or last week about the, the relative emissions of different groups of people. And the folks that are buying LVMH products are also burning a ton of carbon on their yachts. They may own Teslas, but they, they've got 13 air conditioning units on their palace.
0: They actually don't need to ship them their bags through the Panama Canal,
1: they just fly them over. <laughs> In their Learjet. You're right. Luxury brands are not going to save the world for us.
0: I think we knew that. And I am being <laughs> facetious. We knew that they're not going to make much of an effort uh, when it comes to sustainability. It just highlights the fact that this is one of those cases where it needs to be literally a top-down solution. What that regulation looks like is obviously open for discussion. Should happen quick, that discussion, though, because we can see now that companies aren't really going to do it by themselves, in most cases, I should say. The other thing that we wanted to talk about is that inflation is still on consumers and retailers' mind. A Wall Street Journal report sheds light on the ongoing challenges in the retail industry amid this rising inflation, as I talked about. So Carrefour, everybody's favorite French um, supermarket and one of the biggest in the world, said it would drop several PepsiCo products to protest what it called unacceptable price increases. This is a rare public standoff between a grocer and a food maker after more than two years of just basically nonstop price increases. I feel like I'm talking about watches. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so rest in peace, Lays, Doritos, and Cheetos chips. Also, Beanut snacks. I don't know what those are. Eat those in France, maybe. Rob can tell us about that. Alval, gazpacho, Lipton teas, Pepsi, and 7-Up soft drinks. Also, Quaker foods. The move also comes after the COVID-19 pandemic, when a number of companies boasted about their ability to raise prices without significantly damaging sales as a sign of brand strength and in response to the increasing cost pressures faced by retailers emphasizing the de- delicate balance between maintaining profit margins and meeting consumer demand. So I don't know what you think about that, Rob. Are you happy that you're not going to have Lay's, Doritos, or Cheetos? I
1: thought it was really interesting because, again, we, we saw two different ways of trying to manage inflation. The French got their big retailers together and said, you, we're, we're counting on you to reduce inflation. We're counting on you to reserve certain things that would be lower priced for people. This is a, an approach we wouldn't see in the U.S. We'd hope competition would come in and do that. And this is another example of it. When you look at the data that they give you in this article about the price rises that PepsiCo has put in, it's actually pretty astounding. We're talking about 20, 18, 17, 18, 20% year on year increases that they've been going through well past COVID and well, well in excess of inflation rates. So they are using this to put up their prices. And the the Pepsi guys don't deny this. As far as I understood from what they were saying, in the article was, They consider Pepsi to be a kind of luxury good. You like it, you're going to reward yourself, and you'll pay a little more for it. And whereas Carrefour is saying, we think you're profiteering. It's interesting tit for tat and an interesting different way that people look at things in, I would say, in a European uh, or in a French-style approach versus a U.S.-style approach.
0: I, th- I think you're biased. I drink conference. Coke. <laughs> anyway, th- the other thing I want to talk about is Tesla. And the fact that this is a bit old news. It happened very, very beginning of January. But Elon Musk Tesla was knocked off the top spot as the world's best-selling electric vehicle maker for the first time by BYD. Bring your own cars after drawing. <laughs> BYD. <laughs> After recording fewer deliveries than its Chinese rival in the past quarter. Tesla's dethroning by BYD reflects the rise of... I think that was like a system of a down song. <laughs> <laughs> I think it reflects the rise of what was a little known Chinese group only a decade ago, which Musk himself publicly dismissed. I think I saw that clip in Bloomberg like 10 years ago. So the FT explores this intensifying competition in the electric vehicle market. It provides insight into the evolving dynamics of the electric vehicle sector, but also I think most importantly sheds light on the geopolitical implications of the intensifying race in the EV market, and also comes as you've got lots of tariffs and other import restrictions not being considered. For example, in the EU, they look poised to join the US in slapping Chinese car imports with higher tariffs in order to shield thousands of manufacturing jobs one aspect which is emphasized in the report is the impact of these EU tariffs on te- Tesla standing in the race that they could have a make or break effect there. And it shows that these tariffs coupled with supply chain disruptions and other market dynamics, like Tesla having labor disputes in Sweden and knock-on effects in Germany, for example, they've contributed to Tesla's struggles in maintaining its market share. So trade matters is the
1: crux of the argument. We've got now multiple examples of markets being walled off from each other. So BYD is gonna try to manufacture in Europe now to get under what they think is the coming set of tariffs and trade restrictions. They've decided to set up a a large factory in Germany. But the interesting thing about the article also is that the the cost of these Chinese cars is so much lower and the quality is the same and the output of the batteries is the same or higher. So that's interesting. Now the Europeans are gonna put all these trade restrictions and perhaps you've got a walled off market in China and a, and a market in Europe. What do you have? You have less consumer choice. Consumers here are going to be paying more than perhaps they should be. And that's a little bit the distortion that comes with these choices about trade policy. Now There are possible justifications for why you'd want to do this, mm-hmm. but often the data indicates that the results that are sought are not realized. So it'll be interesting to look in retrospect and see how this, for instance, Trump's tariffs, we all know, Great. had a massive cost to U.S. consumers and didn't really change anything about trade dynamics. But they made a few thousand people feel good. Yeah, no, I mean, millions of people felt good. I, I all think, of Iowa felt really f- incredibly realized after that. I think it raises an important point. I, make,
0: I keep making jokes, but I think electorates are coming to realize that politicians are really just trying to give them everything all at once. So they're trying to appease the nativists but also be free trade and do everything under the sun and you can't really have both and they're realizing that actually you're hurting consumers more than anything else even though you're appeasing people in important swing states in the u.s. case so slowly people are coming to this realization that um yeah your trade is actually pretty great and autarky <laughs> is not <laughs> Fabian Waldmeier has been the CEO of the Fairtrade Max Havilar Foundation since April 1st, 2023, where he was working for the past 12 years. Prior to this, he was member of the executive board, heading up the international cooperation division, and for the two and a half years previously becoming CEO, he was the deputy CEO. My old job. You know I was going to throw it in there somewhere. A graduate of the Economics University of Bern, Fabian began his career in public administration and the insurance industry.
1: After that, he went on to manage a private foundation in Kenya involved in both humanitarian aid and agricultural education. Thanks to his many years of experience, Fabian Waldbeier also has in-depth knowledge of the sustainability of supply chains. He's very familiar with the Swiss fair trade market and has a large network both in the stakeholder area and in the international fair trade network.
0: So Fabian, why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up uh, working with uh, Bananas?
3: Well, basically, I I first worked in an insurance company in my first job. And then after that, I went to some studies and then I decided to see something else in this world. I went to Nairobi, Kenya. I worked and lived there for a small development organization that was involved, among other things, in agriculture. And then when I came back to Switzerland, I was basically looking for something that would combine both the development aspect of the work that I had done and also the business aspect. And in Fairtrade, Max Avalar I found this, if you want, much in the middle. And that was how I ended up there. And since, yeah, now it's soon about 13 years I've been around. Thanks for that. I guess most people will know Max Havilar, but for listeners
0: who don't know the full story, what is uh, Fairtrade, Max Havilar, and who is Max?
3: So basically we're a Swiss foundation promoting fair trade among Swiss consumers and businesses and as such we're the Swiss national member organization to the Fairtrade International met- network so what we're basically doing is we're licensing the use of the fair trade label for fair trade certified products in Switzerland Who is Max? That's an interesting question. Max or Max Havelar is a character from a novel from the uh, Netherlands of the 19th century. And he was working in the colonial era of the Netherlands. And he basically, in the novel, was doing something against the exploitation in the colonies. So that's how the first fair trade initiative in the Netherlands used this name, Max Havelar. And we took it over in Switzerland. But now it's just France and us who still use the name.
0: I thought it was taken from um, that Mel Gibson movie from the eighties, but
1: that shows how little I know. <laughs> Mad Max, how do I? we'll come back to that? <laughs> I, I think the foundation was started in the early nineties, wasn't around nineteen ninety two. And at that time, I was going to grad school. Yes. Already was in grade school. Would you like to mention That's just the difference of one e? <laughs> But at that time, free trade was really the thing. And then when I went to graduate school, it was all about free trade, it was all about efficiency and so on. And so fair trade was a big statement in a way, modifying or mitigating the negatives of that. And and I think it's, at least from my perspective, the, the fair trade Max Havilar has built a big following here. And as I was saying to Artie before, it's difficult to buy a banana, for instance, here, without that label on it. But That said, issues of sustainability and fairness are now much more well known and even the EU is legislating and even the Swiss government. So how do you see the role of fair trade? Maybe is it still as relevant? Is it evolving? How do you see it now in this this era where things are being regulated?
3: I think it's very interesting times i would say it is probably as relevant as never before yes we do see governments coming in with regulation the question is how will those regulations be implemented and and even more so how can they be implemented in a way that smallholder producers benefit from them i think that's where fair trade comes in we're in that sense a tool to companies that supports them in implementing new sustainability regulations not just by the letter but in an equitable and fair manner. What our certification system addresses is aspects required by law, both in material terms as well as in in administrative and procedural terms. But what sets us apart is that we do require companies not only to do risk analysis and prevent violations to the environment or human rights, but we ask companies to commit to sustainable pricing and fair purchasing practices. And I think that is the big question even today, even with all these laws being implemented, the question is who bears the burden? Mm. Who really pays for it? And I think that's why fair trade even in this era of governments regulating sustainability, is as relevant as never before, probably.
1: Do you think consumers are as interested? Fair trade has got a certain following. It seems to be plateauing in some ways. There's issues of purchasing power and so on, especially in Europe. Do you see consumers as interested? Do you see that momentum there?
3: Here in Switzerland, certainly. We still grow on an already high level of consumption. We have more than 100 Swiss francs per capita per year that is being spent on fair trade products. That's more than in every other country. But if we look outside Switzerland, in the European Union, the neighboring countries, inflation is really becoming an issue. And and I think here, something interesting is happening. While during COVID, people were actually spending more for organic products, for instance, People are now cutting back on their food purchases and companies in turn, for instance, retailers, they put more price entry products into their shelves and they way sometimes more premium products or more ambitious products in terms of sustainability. What I think now needs to happen, and this is going to be interesting, is that I think we need to go into an era where we don't differentiate between a cheap product and a sustainable product. Because if you think through the new regulation, every product has to be sustainable. Every product has to comply or every company has to comply with the new regulations. So therefore, every product that they put on the shelf needs to go through all of that. And the question will be, how can you do that at scale in a very price sensitive market that we see, especially around us? I think Switzerland in that sense is still a little bit of a special case. Still, from our end, we haven't seen signs of decline. To the contrary, we're going to have a very good year again this year, and we're also having a positive outlook for next year.
0: That's mainly because everything was already expensive in Switzerland. So case in point, I don't look at the prices anymore because I just know I'm going to I'm gonna be hurt.
3: I think you can't compare price sensitivity in countries like Germany with Switzerland. It's just a whole different story. Yeah. But if I talk to my German colleagues, they tell me a very different story than what I would be telling you at this moment.
0: Hmm. I guess on a more practical note, when I told my wife who we'd be interviewing, she, this is one of the first times when talking about the podcast, she actually perked up and I'm, and I'm making it. It's funny, but it's, it's true. She said, oh, okay fair trade the bananas guys so consumer wise she makes me buy bio bio as they call it here in geneva everywhere i go but one question for example how does a company like max Havelar ensure that what they're sourcing actually meet these stringent requirements so how can somebody like me or my wife who are going into the migro or, or, or the co-op know that we're buying it with trust
3: so basically if you buy a fair trade product in switzerland or anywhere it's always the same standards behind it and it's always the same certification system so we do have two sets of standards one is at production level we certify producers normally they are organized smallholder farmers so they're typically cooperatives in coffee cocoa bananas we also do certify some larger plantations typically also in bananas but also in things like cut flowers they follow the standards they are being audited regularly and then we have a second set of standards that's what makes fair trade probably different from other certification schemes. We have a second set of standards that is basically for the downstream actors. So for the people who purchase the products, not the consumers, but the intermediaries, the companies that that basically buy the products from the producers. Their we require the payment of a minimum price, we require the payment of a premium, and a couple of other things that you could call good sourcing practices or responsible sourcing practices. And this is also being audited. And if you take, for instance, the, the price premium payment, it's always audited from two sides. So it's basically audited the, the financial system of, of the buyer, but it's also audited from the financial system of, of the producers. So you can actually see by transaction, what price has been paid and, and that is being audited both sides.
0: And I guess building on that, so we've been talking with lots of our guests in the past about how corporate commitment sustainability more broadly have, have evolved to lots of these different collective efforts um, in terms of raising consciousness and supporting um, different sustainability efforts. So I guess core to the work of uh, Fair Trade Max Havillard, if I can just call it FTMH, for short, because that's a lot like
1: LBM. of sure. <laughs> FTMH,
0: <laughs> but cooler. Anyway, sorry for that segue. to your work has been partnering with corporates. How, how have you seen their commitment evolving over time? Is it, some say we've reached peak ESG, and that's, a, that's a different discussion, but do you see this sort of just increasing over time? Has it
3: plateaued? I, I see it absolutely increasing over time. And I think now it's fundamentally changing because of what we talked earlier, because of the new regulations coming in. But let me give you an example from our partnerships with retail we've been very strong here in switzerland with working with all the retailers but at the beginning of our collaboration it was typically that they would they would put on shelf one product out of a range so one coffee out of their entire assortment one chocolate out of their entire assortment and with time they have increased that commitment to a a broad range of products or even switching entire product lines. And I think along with that has been an evolution of even how they organize sustainability internally and and that goes also for big companies for brands etc. I would say a lot of corporate sustainability programs are very ambitious when it comes to things like improved agriculture or climate resilience. Nowadays everybody invests into regenerative agriculture also from a climate perspective where I would say the big question still lies is when it comes to what I've talked about earlier on, sustainable purchasing practices, fair prices, there you have this trade-off. And I think companies still have internal trade-off between different goals, profit versus purpose, if you want, or sustainability versus cost efficiency. And now it's going to be interesting because people now say as companies are making commitments for instance on net zero and all of that sustainability will move more into finance so you have that conflicting goal trade-off within the same department of a company my fear would be with all the regulations that are coming in that sustainability is moving to towards legal and compliance and i think that could lead to a situation that could have adverse effects because if companies are no longer willing then to engage in, let's say, low-income countries, which are often high risk, then from an impact point of view, that might actually not be positive. And we've seen now some companies moving away from sourcing from certain African countries because they say it's too risky because we can't control deforestation, we can't control things like giant labor, et cetera. I think in the last decades, there has been a very strong move of sustainability inside companies and now the question is how is regulation going to change that so we talked about auditing
1: which is a lot about the premiums and so on but maybe give you a chance to talk about the actual impact because of course why we're doing this is to make people's lives better that they have a little bit more money in their pocket that they have improved lives so give us a little bit on the impact and maybe some things you've seen to, to give people encouragement
3: i think one thing we can see very clearly The biggest impact of fair trade is price stability and and as a function of that also income stability especially when market prices crash if you look into coffee there it's quite impressive so in 25 out of 33 years the fair trade minimum price has actually been relevant and has um, earned farmers and farmer organization an extra piece of income on top comes the premium and that premium is actually interesting because it has Two sorts of impacts, and that's also what I've seen when traveling to Origin. One impact is the monetary impact, so the premium can be invested in all sorts of things from productivity to direct farmer payments to community infrastructure projects, etc. But the other one is the less obvious one, and I think that's the interesting one from a development point of view. It's the impact on participation in democratic structures and in well-functioning organizations. When I started working at Fairtrade Trade Moxavilar, we actually did an impact evaluation for our 20th anniversary. And, and the researchers actually looked into this and they concluded that this effect of strengthening um, participation and organizational capacity in smallholder setups is as important as the monetary impact of the premium. And and I want to give you an example. So when I did my first producer visit in Ethiopia, I visited coffee farmers and we went to their let's say administration building where they had their offices and all of that. And I asked them of course what they did with the fair trade premium. So they showed me a bridge behind the building and I said they built that bridge. And then I asked them why. And they said they did it so that The farmers who are located on the other side of the valley could more easily join this side and bring their coffee to the washing station. I think what is interesting about this is this was a collective decision by the farmers about a need that for them locally and collectively mattered most. And I think that's an impact that is often overlooked. but in my view, from a developmental point of view, not to be underestimated. Fairtrade generates 200 million euros in premium every year. And that premium is being given, if you will, with no instructions how to use it. The only thing we say is the process. You need to come together, you need to take a collective decision, and you need to report back to your you know, general assembly or whatever you have as a cooperative or as, as a workers' committee, and account for how you use the money. And that is what's being audited. That is not something you can take for granted in a development country or in a developing country. I think that is unique in the sense that it actually gives decision-making power to to the first level of production. And in my view, that impact, uh, as much as you probably can't quantify it, is as important as the quantifiable impact with income. So I think we, we need to
1: transition to the more important part of the interview. So start off, we're wondering how many A's there are in Max Havilar, this is not an exam. And how often do people misspell it? Or just
3: new employees. <laughs> is there an exam? The A's would be, I would say, about four. It's if you the max, <laughs> but at least I'm four. Not very good at counting. People actually don't have a problem in spelling it or pronouncing it. I think that the name is very well known in Switzerland for a long yeah. time. Uh, Sometimes people call and they want to talk to Mister Havelar. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But that would then. That'd probably be me then. Yes,
0: exactly. (laughs) So I I mentioned this before, but I guess many people have been saying, by many people you can read between the lines, that the real inspiration came from the Mel Gibson movie for the name of the foundation. Mad Max Havilar, for example, the sequel, the follow-up, which was Mad Max Havilar, Beyond Thunderdome, (laughs) etc. Please comment.
3: That's no, not true. It was actually, it was Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly in, in, a, in a very early draft version of Back to the Future. He traveled through time to the Netherlands of the 19th century. <laughs> he actually inspired the author of the famous Max Havala novel, Eduard Decker. But he couldn't pronounce the name Marty McFly, so he called him Max Fly. I think that's where it came
0: funny from. funny because neither can our, uh, our audio software. can't pronounce my name because
1: I always come up as Marty. So Do you? There's that, yeah. Oh, really? I'm Marty. I'm going to call you that. So do you have anybody at the foundation that's called Max? That's a follow-up from the earlier. Do they get paid extra? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I'm Max. Max. Not
3: at the moment. There used to be one. And I think if if in, in applications, it would certainly be an advantage. But at the moment, we don't have anybody.
1: There are a few. Now we get to the more rigorous and obviously serious part of the podcast, which is about the Geneva, obviously, is a Canton, but also a republic. The national food is kebab. In your view, which is your favorite kebab in Geneva? And if you need a hint, it's probably Parfum de Beirut.
0: It's not fair trade, whatever Parfum. (laughs) Parfum de not fair trade.
3: I actually don't know. I I am in Geneva every so often, but I don't even know. I I know a very nice Portuguese place, (sighs) but uh, I think I only had one kebab in Geneva, and that tasted the same as it does in in
1: Zurich. Yeah, especially at 2 AM. It's not great. Exactly. And is there <laughs> and are you thinking of doing fair tra- applying fair trade principles to the kebab uh, meat pyramid? I guess there's petroleum is out.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. No, but it's just it's a vegetarian kebab. It's made up of chickpeas and avocado and yep. hot yeah. chili spices and then it goes. So this could be no. This could be hard. even for planted chicken. It's made up of some some variant of peas. So that could be possible. This is not just
0: beyond meat. This is beyond the pale. This is too Come much.
1: This is too much. Come on. It's, it's called a, a falafel. mango kebab. We it's, can't it's have. It's those. called a falafel. This kebab was made out of my shoelaces. <laughs> 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 I think that's it. Thanks a lot, Fabian. If people want to learn more about fair trade backs where where can they where can they find out more?
3: I would say on our website, fairtrade.maxhavlar.ch or internationally on fairtrade.net. And in
1: a grocery store near you. Well, Artie, that brings us to our next segment. This is where our correspondent Michelle talks to us about the vibe shift. Michelle, is globalization finally dead?
2: Thanks, Rob. Well, globalization is definitely slowly dying, but Bose might be saving it. Or maybe they're just a way to justify inflation. So there's this new thing called the bow tax. And it's very simple. Step one, you make a product. Any product, really, it could be jeans, it could be a cup, it could be a croissant, whatever you want. Step two, add a bow. Okay. Okay.
3: We're so talking about like so a good? red bow, like a
2: bow, just a bow. It doesn't okay. really matter. Well, like Step it. three, success. And by success I mean you can mark it up, the markup can reach up to 120%. Just if you're using bows on your product. How do we know this? Well, Mishka Ivanovich, or Ivanovic.
1: My cousin. <laughs> Mishka.
2: She's a New York City tailor, so she could be. Her last she name probably is.
0: <laughs> Funny story, Tito made my family change their name, put a vich at the end of their name.
2: Wow. That was a Maybe that's what long. happened to Mishka as well. Yeah. Now she's fighting back with so bows. I, I said she's, she's fighting my,
0: back. She's my cousin.
2: Well, she's a tailor in New York City. And she found this out when she was trying to brand the things that she was altering in her own little studio. She just wanted to make sure that everybody knew it was her doing the alterations and she could get more business. But it turns out that people were actually paying her just to add bows to their clothes. She did this on some jeans, and it was a tiny blue bow on each back pocket of the jeans. And she doubled the price. And people were paying her to do that. And Laura Pitcher from The Cut, who actually coined this term, ran with it and showed examples of bags, of t-shirts, of earrings that could really double in price just by adding a very simple bow. And now trend forecasters have picked up on the term. And I know we're a little late for 2024 predictions, but apparently 2024 is going to be full of bows.
1: And inflation.
2: And inflation with the bows.
0: Or, they,
1: or Now, if you put if you put these bows on Taylor Swift merchandise,
2: yeah, Ooh.
1: then you could really have inflation. Yeah,
2: that's a quadruple that could, quadruple inflation. But it, should,
1: it shouldn't be inflation if it's actually adding value. This is a value addition situation.
2: According to trend forecasters, we're reclaiming our childhood by putting bows, but also they have to fill out reports that pretend to know what they're doing. So <laughs> exactly. I'm not super sure it's about childhood. I think maybe we just want pretty things, or maybe we get the bows and we just pay for them anyway. What do you think? Would you buy stuff with bows?
1: I love bows. I'm not saying it is gendered. Could men be out there getting bows on
0: yes. their stuff?
2: Yeah, the jeans happen to both men and women. Not oh,
1: really. M- men, little
0: are already, blue bows. Men already wear bow ties, so I guess they're halfway there. Uh, some men, they do. The brave ones. It's some true. Men. Some men. Some men. (laughs) That
2: was derogatory.
0: Uh, True story. I'm I'm not lying here. I only started listening halfway in, and I thought you were talking about the Bose headphones. (laughs) I think the
1: segment's over already.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for saying you don't listen to me. It's okay.
1: (laughs) You came a little late there. The segment's already over. (laughs) Okay, Artie, I think it's time to talk about local news. Everybody's been waiting. They've been patiently listening to stuff about trade and so on. So this is our uh, segment on local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Starting off, maybe you want to continue the theme and tell us about these poor folks in uh, Scotland. And they seem to have gotten some sort of dangerous virus and they've lined up to buy a bunch of plastic watches.
0: No, he's (laughs) not talking about the plot of Contagion. But in Edinburgh... I don't know how it's pronounced. I don't know how a Scottish person pronounced. They usually yell at you when they pronounce it, as they're (laughs) pronouncing it. Shoppers in Edinburgh formed a massive queue, as they call it in the UK. I don't know why. It's a line. On Thursday, hoping to be one of the lucky ones to get their hands on a new watch. Not just any watch. I mentioned this earlier in the beginning of the episode. But this was the new Swatch Blancpain collaboration, and it was called the Ocean of the Storms edition. It's all black, like the New Zealand rugby team. And it's pretty amazing. So amazing, in fact, that they lined up in the wee hours of the morning, as they say in in, (laughs) in Scotland, the wee hours. They would say that to pay three hundred and fifty dollars each for one of these watches.
1: Now, the thing we don't have, which we would really like to have, and I know right now Michelle's feverishly looking on the internet to find it, is data on how disappointed they were after standing hours in Scottish rain to get a plastic watch okay Did this, they know it was plastic this
0: is anecdotal and i usually would say yes you're usually right rob because you have way way more experience than i do but i God. saw one of these watches i was at a birthday drinks last week yes and somebody i'm not going to say who who's at that party he went to the swatch store here in geneva yes. the day this watch came out yes. and he stood in line and picked it up this is you right no this was this not me you. i swear to God. this, this is, is for sure you no it was a friend he actually It's a
1: friend. <laughs> to
2: okay. okay. No,
1: no.
0: He, he he stood in line with 40 other people and picked up one of these Blanc Pound watches and I saw it in person. It's pretty cool. It's actually instead of spending 10,000 on the real one, just get this Swatch version. It's pretty cool, I have to say.
1: All right, folks. We also have a couple of other stories. Those of you who are looking for work are going to be disappointed. The job of Monkey King, which has just been filled in China is no longer available. Apparently, this is where you have to sit in a cave, wear a mask and eat bananas, and this is a real job. I thought you were talking about a new Netflix show that's coming out, (laughs) Monkey King. I don't think AI is gonna replace this guy. I think this is one of those jobs that's pretty safe.
0: I think this is one of the jobs that AI
1: should replace. I don't know how you would, frankly. I don't know how AI is gonna eat a banana. Riddle me that, various AI people. And last, I think we do need to uh, say a congratulations to the poll cat. Switzerland's animal of the year. <laughs> the polecat was crowned Switzerland's animal of the year for 2024. But how can you already be the animal of the year for 24? It's not even happened yet. There's so a is methodological it. issue here. But I think what's important is we've got a beautiful little red-looking member of the Martin family. Now, polecat, where I grew up, meant skunk. He looks like Timon. He does look like Timon. He's like a Swiss Timon. He <laughs> <laughs> does. timon lily from the German part. Unfortunately, he's called a vulnerable species, so please, please be nice to him. Well, folks, that wraps up episode 58, brought to you by the slightly inferior but really, really nice chips NVIDIA has to now sell in China. Also, rest in peace, Tostitos. (laughs) <laughs> by PepsiCo. Scottish watch buyers enjoying the plastic watches that Blancpin and Deswatch put together, and of course the now famous Swiss Bullcat. And we want to thank Fabian Waldmeier of Fairtrade, Max Havilar for telling us about the past and future of Fair trade, and of course introducing us to Fairtrade Cola. And really clearing up this whole issue of Mel Gibson and Max
0: Havilar. We also want to thank our executive producer Michelle Oguin and Christy Bagsich for helping and highlight the vibe shift as well as in helping produce this and every TS episode. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Christy. Special, special thanks to Christy. This is, in fact, her last episode working with the Tradesplaining team. She'll be moving on to bigger and better things. But fear not, Tradesplaining listeners, we have two new people joining, which you'll hear about in future episodes. So please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in the meantime, if you haven't done so already, to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We do read them. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. Or email us your questions, comments, the old fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com.
1: And remember, everybody, listen, listen responsibly. responsibly. That we should have done for the poll cap.